I like that. Did you think that was going to happen? Yes. I knew that. But the, ch the children at our church have very high expectations. They're very... <laughs> That's good. Uh, listen, before we open our Bibles and take a bit of a journey this morning, let's uh, spend a couple minutes together in prayer. So pray with me, please. Father, again, I want to just thank you for the day and the privilege that we have. Uh, I look around the room and I see that many of us are here uh, week in, week out, every Sunday we're here. And I just, uh, I just pray that as we do this, it would not become habit for us. It would not become ritual. It would not become religion for us. Privilege that we recognize uh, the freedom that we have and the privilege that we have to gather together and kind of reorient ourselves to hear from your word, to express our worship in song, to express our worship in giving, to recenter ourselves on you. Uh, many of us would, would quickly recognize that uh, we are who we are, we can do what we do, we, we succeed in life, we thrive in life, we taste the most that you have for us when we center ourselves around you. And I think the, the truth is that many of us plug through the week uh, and, and don't very often stop and, and remind ourselves of that. So I want to thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have that we come together here, can lean on one another, can encourage one another, and can uh, remind one another of uh, your strength and who you are in our lives. We're mindful this morning that uh, we who sit in this room right now are not the only ones that represent this body of Christ, this church. There are many who belong to this body who aren't here with us uh, for a number of reasons, whether or not it's simply travel or whether it be health issues, whatever it might be. Uh, we pray this morning, Father, <coughs> we're mindful of those who are not here with us. Ask your blessing on them wherever they are. And I just pray that as we get a picture again this morning, uh, through the development of your word, how your word came together to be resting in our hands, that we see more importantly than the history of how it happened, we see it, again the picture of who you are. I just thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have. I ask your blessing as we do this, we spend this time together. May we uh, not only enjoy one another's company, but recognize again we have uh, sat in the presence, the Spirit of God in amongst us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great promise of Scripture that where, where we would be, uh, God would be with us. We're going to touch on something this morning where they talk about the sanctuary. And I have poked at you a little bit to say, you know, this room is not the sanctuary. Some of you are familiar with calling this room the sanctuary. You grew up calling it the sanctuary. And uh, we see Scriptures this morning that says, this isn't the sanctuary. This is, a, this is a room. This is a room in the church that happens to have the most comfortable seating for a large group of people. That's what this room is. The sanctuary is the people of God. The gathering of God. So if we all got up and went into the gym, suddenly the gym would become the sanctuary. Uh, I'll actually show you this morning where that comes from. The word of the day is kingdom. Kingdom. I want you to get the word kingdom in your mind, uh, traveling a bit of a timeline and trying to figure out where and how did it all come together that I have a Bible. You may have picked up your Bible this morning without a second thought, because you probably have four or five of them in your house. Who knows? Um, or you've got it on your phone or on your tablet or something. We don't give it a second thought that there's a history and a, there's, a, there's a background to how this came into our hands. We're going to fly through a thousand years in about 25 minutes this morning. Actually, it's closer to about 500 years because um, for those of you Bible learners, uh, in the time between the last books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what does God say in those 400 years? Yeah, he doesn't say anything, right? Um, so it's not really from 1000 BC till the time of Christ. It's really only about 450 years 500 years until that's the end of our the development of our Old Testament. So 
If you're sitting in this section, sorry about your luck. You, you might have to strain your neck and take a look around because we're going to go along that wall real quick, real quick and answer the question, where did our Old Testament come from? My goal this morning is that we might touch on some of the passages that originally we read and we think, well, that's really obscure. That's really odd. That's hard to read. Like, for example, Ezekiel chapter 37. And get a handle on why was that relevant then? What is it actually telling and teaching the people of God? I had a prof at, uh, at a seminary that one of his statements really stuck with me as we were doing uh, the Bible intro course. And he said, listen, as obscure as some of the Old Testament language is, you know, written thousands of years ago, another time, another place, another culture, the Bible cannot say something for us today that it didn't say to its original audience. So whatever the principle was for its original listeners, whether it's Moses or whether it's Jonah or whether it's Habakkuk or whoever, whatever the principle was for them, it says the same thing to us today. Different application, different culture, but the principle doesn't change. So we're going to look at a few things this morning. Um, now I'll warn you, I got 10 pages of notes here, but I'll at least tell you why. Because this morning, as I was seeing my notes and the posters on the back, I didn't want to be flipping my glasses on and off again, so I got my notes in huge print. Okay, so it's 10 pages of huge print, which is the equivalent of about three, which is what I usually bring with me. So y'all just relax. I've said to people before, if I have to, I'll preach till the room's empty. I'll just keep going, and you, when it's time for you to go, you go. No, we're going we're gonna to be on time for this this morning. The Old Testament overview, uh, what was happening, this is going to be what was happening at the time of the writing or perhaps just before the writing. The black posters on the wall represent an event in history, something happened. The red posters represent when was that book of the Bible written. So for many of them, like in the case of Isaiah or Daniel, uh, the book is written well after those events happen. Okay, so when you see uh, Daniel 536, 530 B.C., that's not when the events of Daniel happened. That's when Daniel wrote them down. The events of Daniel happened sometime before that. So the black posters are, when did it happen? The red poster is, is when was it written down? Job, we don't really know, right? We know that it is probably, the scholars say it's probably the earliest book in your Bible. Uh, we know that it has to be sometime after, well after 3000 BC, because there was no such thing as writing before that. So we're going to put Job out there somewhere ahead, but we don't really know when that happened. The Pentateuch? The back corner, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people have come out of slavery. They've come out of Egypt. They have no idea what they're supposed to be. Now what? Now we're not slaves anymore. What do we do? And God brings Moses up the mountain and says, here is my law. Here is my decree. Here's my description of what I want my people to be. We call it the Levitical law or the Mosaic law. But God described for them, here's what you look like as a nation. And what they are was a theocracy. Their faith in God, their practice of faith, like we do on Sunday morning, their practice of faith was their government. God says, you, you worship me, and out of that practice of worship and the sacrifices and the things you do, that's the way you govern yourselves as a people. And it's not completely surprising, well, we'll get to it in a minute, what the people's response to that was. The book of Joshua, dated around 1390 BC, is the story of that nation. What happened from the time they left the foot of Mount Sinai, the time that they became a nation of people. That's what you find in the book of Joshua. Uh, they establish a kingdom. So you, you find, you know, the, the kings being established on the throne. In Joshua chapter 24, uh, if you can, the mental imagery is that Joshua tells them the story of how did we get here? How did we become a nation? How did we become a kingdom? And he kind of draws a line in the sand for them. In Joshua chapter 20, 24, he says this. 
And you'll be familiar with some of this too. He tells them all the backstory. He tells them their own history. And then he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worshipped beyond the Euphrates and the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. He reminded them just before this that when God called Abraham out from where he was, Abraham was not a God worshipper. Abraham was not a worshipper of what we would say the God of Jacob and Isaac. Abraham was a worshipper of multiple gods. And God called Abraham away from that, but they brought some of that with them. And so now Joshua is saying, look, now that God has established us, it's time for us to throw away the gods of our ancestors. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, says Joshua, the leader of the people at that time, I'm going to serve the one and true God. Now you make a choice for yourself. Knowing the history, knowing that we are who we are because of the grace and the power of God, you have to decide whether or not you're going to get rid of what you're familiar with and serve the Lord. And the story goes on that the people said, no, far be it from us. To, to You're right, Joshua. God brought us here. We will serve the Lord. And Joshua's response is very surprising. Joshua says, no, you won't. No, you won't. Because God is a jealous God and he will not, he will not accept second place. I'm not ashamed as a preacher to tell you here this morning, to stand up here before you, God is not going to accept second place from you. When we talk about the nature of a steadfast and a steady and the, and the God being the same forever, he's the exact same today. I think the way I've said it before is this. Your salvation in Christ is a gift just given to you freely, but discipleship for him demands absolutely everything. So if you're under the impression that you can follow God in certain ways and keep other things to yourself and be your own God in other ways, I'm telling you straight up from the mouth of Joshua, no, that's not the way it works. God is not like that. Um, and so the people say, no, no, we're with you. We'll do it. And so it says in Joshua chapter 24, just a few verses after that, Joshua said to them, fine, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to write together a covenant. And it said, Joshua documented these things and he wrote it down. And that's actually the words in our text. It's the story itself is what Joshua wrote. And that's what we read when we're reading Joshua chapter 24. Most of the Psalms are going to be written right around that same time. The earliest of Psalms credited to Moses, most of them credited to David, uh, the worship leader for Israel, Asaph, uh, from chapter 73 on. And so the Psalms are a little hard to, to nail down. If you take a look at these posters later today on your way out, you'll note that some of the books we can actually date on a specific year. Some of the books have a range of dates. It's sometime in here. And some of them are just flat out unknown. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the Song of Songs, all accredited to Solomon. But some of them, some of the chapters in those books are credited to people later. So we have, we have a range of dates, but we're not exactly sure. The book of Judges uh, just tells you about the period between once they were out of slavery, before they became a kingdom, what was happening in that time. And that was the time of the Judges. It tells us right at the very end of the book of the Judges that at this time, everybody kind of did whatever they wanted. Uh, any guesses on whether that worked to their favor or not? It did not. <laughs> it did not. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. When they just people did whatever they want, it didn't work to their favor. The book of Judges is when we first see this cycle. God's blessing on his people and, and, and loving them and providing for them. And the blessing is so rich that they become complacent. They become familiar with it. They become used to it. And so they get lazy in their worship. And eventually they start into idolatry and they get all kinds of garbage going on. And out of that, God speaks through a prophet, or in this case a judge, and says, Come back to faithfulness in me. Remember who I am and what I've done. 
and they don't listen, and out of that comes suffering. Suffering and defeat and crushing things happen. And of those things, the people cry out to God and say, Oh, God, save us from this. This isn't fair. This isn't just. This isn't right. And God says, when your heart's truly broken and you understand how you got there, and then the story is redemption and forgiveness and blessing. And what do people do with blessing? That was like 30 seconds ago that I told you that, right? <laughs> well, we say, well, when God blesses me, I thank God. Okay, initially we thank God, but eventually, listen, their history is our history. We do this. You know you do this. God is so good to me. God is so rich to me that I start to assume he has to be. So I plug my coin into the God bending machine and tell him what I want, right? And that's the cycle we see for the first time. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it all the way through the New Testament, but Judges is where you see it first. And so uh, that's back in before the kingdom even starts. The story of Ruth, uh, again, unknown when it exactly was written, but it probably happened sometime during the, the Judges. And then we come to the first major event in the story, and that's the divided kingdom. In First and Second Samuel, it tells us the story of how the kingdom was formed, how they went from conquest and conquering the land. Then what did they do? In First Samuel chapter 8, the story is told that the people said to Samuel the prophet, we want a king. This whole theocracy thing, this law of Moses, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but we want a king. Because we've looked at the other nations around us, and they have a king, and they seem to be doing well, so we want a king. We want to be governed like that. And Samuel's response is, no, no, no. God said when he rescued us from slavery to be governed like this. And the people said, we want a king. So the book of Samuel tells us, Samuel goes to God and says, what am I supposed to do? The people are demanding, and this is what God says to Samuel. It's recorded in Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 8. Go ahead, put it up here on the screen. So the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the, what the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt till this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing now. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Does anybody know on what standard did the people of Israel initially choose a king? First of all, who was he? First king of Israel, Saul. And why was Saul chosen? Military reasons, it's even simpler than that. Because he was? Tall. Congratulations. You chose a king because he's tall. There's no way they would have chosen me had I been there. Right? Honestly, like sometimes you, if, you, if you're careful in the reading, you read it and you just have to laugh. Are you kidding me? You chose a king because he looks like one. That's not a Monty Python. Right? That's why they chose a king, because he looks like one. Uh, did it work out well with Saul as king? No. 40 years of... Basically, most of his energy was spent on chasing David. Most of his energy as king was spent on trying to kill David because somebody had told him David was the man that God approved of. And when you get power, right, you do everything you can to protect it. Uh, so it didn't work out. The people of God knew. Listen, this is, this is huge, this divided kingdom. They knew. They were not ignorant. They knew what God had scripted for them. They just said, I'm not interested. We have something better in mind. Now, lest we think that that's Old Testament silly Israel, I'm going to tell you that I was chatting with another pastor in our association this week, and he was, he was bemoaning to me some of the garbage going on in their church, and we're, you know, talking about pastoral, how do you, and what would be wise and whatnot. And he said in one of his interactions with uh, some of the people at his church, these are people that are, were on his board. Uh, so these were, these were leaders in their church community. And they were debating how the church ought to respond to these certain tensions 
And he was explaining to them the words out of the book of Romans and how it would give him direction. And he said, one of the leaders in my church looked me in the eye and said, I don't care what the Bible says about this. We ought to do this instead. This is not just Old Testament things that lead to brokenness. It still happens today. So the kingdom is divided because the people said, we got a better idea than God. That's about 1050. I don't know if you can see it from here. That kingdom division is at 930. So the kingdom that they thought they were so smart in establishing lasted all of about 120 years. And then it this basically falls apart. It was never what God intended. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon wrote in about that time. The book of Amos. Uh, so you look, so we have the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. This is where it gets a little bit confusing for us. We think of the story of Israel. But at the split of the kingdom, it is the northern kingdom that is referred to as Israel. And the capital is Samaria. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. And the capital is Jerusalem. For I had a hard time with that when I was younger. I always thought Israel, Jerusalem. But when the kingdom divides, it's actually Samaria is the capital of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, you will find sometimes in Scripture that it refers to Israel, it's referring to the whole. Uh, but that is the, the literal names of the kingdoms. And Amos, the book of Amos, he's one of the first prophets to speak into the kingdom of Israel and basically says, we are not where we're supposed to be. Um, the book of Amos is a harsh rebuke. It's one of those books of the Bible, you read it and go, eh, I didn't want to read this today. Um, it's basically saying, look, the kingdom never should have been divided. We're offside. God's calling us back to um, faithfulness. The book of Amos is the picture of an angry God. The threat of Assyria is right there. So Assyria as a nation has already risen in power in that area of the world, and the threat is very real. The capital of Assyria is a place called Nineveh. Can anybody tell me what story you are familiar with in which the city of Nineveh is central? Jonah, right? The story of Jonah, the city of Nineveh. Uh, unless you connect these dots, right? God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach my grace to them. You think, who cares? What's a Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is the capital city of the very nation that they are threatened by. Nineveh is representing of your, your doom. You're going to be overrun. You're going to be crushed. These are people who don't care about your faith, don't care about you. Uh, you are in danger because of them. And God says to Jonah, go to them and preach to them how much I love them. So it's not surprising that Jonah's answer is, no, I'm not going to Nineveh, God. Do you not, do you not know what's happening here? So that gives you a little bit of context for the story of Jonah. I mean, why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the very capital that was going to overthrow them. The book of Micah. Uh, Micah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, but he's watching what's going on in the northern kingdom. By the time Micah writes his prophecy, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed. So Micah's writing to the southern kingdom saying, look, th this is not abstract. We see this happening. The other half of us as a people is now gone. They're destroyed. So when he calls to faithfulness, uh, he's saying, we're seeing it happen right in front of us. The book of Hosea, uh, he is technically a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he had written to the northern kingdom, uh, Hosea's prophetic ministry, that's when he's out there preaching and calling people back to repentance, is before the fall of Israel. He doesn't write until after it happens, but he's there calling people back to faith. So his writings were preserved by the southern kingdom, saying, wow, Hosea was right on the mark. He knew exactly what was happening. God's word has come true through him. Uh, if you think of Assyria only being a threat to the northern kingdom, you probably don't have the whole picture. Because by now, by the time you get to 700 BC, Assyria has invaded the southern kingdom as well, and has taken over many of the borderlands outside. 
They've been unable to conquer Jerusalem, but the southern kingdom of Judah is also now under the shadow and the threat of Assyria. And that makes a difference when you're listening to Isaiah, because Isaiah uh, has, tells them there's, Isaiah is this huge book of prophecy that covers a great spectrum of, of word. And it starts with Isaiah chapter 1, I've referred to before. Isaiah chapter 1 is harsh. Isaiah chapter 1 says to you, don't you dare bring less than your best to God. Do not come together in the assembly of God and give half-hearted attention, half-hearted worship, half-hearted offering. Half God says, it stinks. I want nothing to do with it. Unless you're bringing me everything, keep it. I mean, that's the, that's the nature of Isaiah chapter 1. It is in-your-face prophecy. But by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 66, you have God making this promise, I'm going to redeem everything. Everything is going to be beautiful like you're hoping it would be. So you've got the full spectrum of prophetic word in Isaiah. And in Isaiah, in some of the latter chapters in 53, he describes how he's going to do this through the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that we go to to say, this is the foreshadow and the description of Jesus Christ. Or sorry, 52. Christ the suffering servant. And there's a message that comes through Isaiah that nobody wants to hear, but unless we, if, 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 you don't, if you don't see it, if you miss it, we won't understand. And the message through Isaiah is this. Redemption will come for God's people through suffering. Redemption and rescue and the wholeness of God is going to come through suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but I put a, a fair bit of effort in my life to avoid suffering. I don't like it. I don't seek it out. And if I can see a way around it, I avoid it, right? But several thousand years ago, God made it very clear through his prophet Isaiah, I will redeem, I will rescue, I will rebuild, but it's going to come through the process of suffering. Now, we'll see that in a little bit, that the people forgot that so quickly. Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah has the same kind of message as Isaiah, but he sees that the people aren't hearing it. He sees his people drifting further and further away from God. So then, again, Zephaniah is a tough book to read. The book of Nahum is one of the forgotten prophets. I don't know how many of you have ever done a Bible study in Nahum or just thought, oh man, I love Nahum. How many of you even know Nahum was a book in the Bible? How many of you thought Nahum was something you put into your ingredients? Just add a pinch of Nahum. No, it's a prophet. And God speaks uh, pretty interestingly through Nahum. By the time Nahum writes in uh, early 600 BC, Assyria has already installed some governors throughout Judah. Assyria has overtaken a fair bit of the land. And so the people are thinking, well, the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to us. Uh, Manasseh, 12 years old, when he becomes king in Judah. And you read it, you think, why would Judah give themselves a 12-year-old king? Because Assyria told them to. Assyria established these puppet kings in the land, all different places. And so Nahum's uh, book of prophecy is a word against Assyria. When you read Nahum, you think, oh, who cares? What is Assyria? What does it mean? That's Nahum speaking at that time saying, you are never meant to rule us, and God has promised that you wouldn't rule us. He's going to raise up another. Habakkuk, about the same time, writes and says that God is rising up, raising up another one who will get rid of Assyria. No one in their right mind could imagine that happening at the time. Assyria was the world power. Go back 20 years ago. No one in the world would imagine anybody on this planet could be more powerful than the United States of America. I mean, economically, in terms of military, whatever. There was no competition to the U.S. maybe 20 years ago, right? So if we had said to you 20 years ago, can the U.S. fall? Most people would go, not a chance. They're far too powerful. That's the place where they were at. 
No one can conquer Assyria. And through Habakkuk, God says, oh yes, I will. I'm raising one up. Interestingly enough, some years later, he says to Daniel, the Most High is sovereign over all these kingdoms of man, and he gives them to whomever he wishes and raises them up for his purpose. Obadiah and Joel are up there simply because we really don't know when they were written. Uh, some people will argue that Obadiah would have been a whole lot earlier, Joel perhaps earlier. One way or another, Obadiah and Joel are probably written before the exile ever happens. So they're, they're situated where they are because we had a nice blank spot on the wall above the sound booth. Uh, doesn't really mean that's where they belong. They are sometime before the exile, those two. Uh, exile number one in 605 BC. In 612, Babylon comes down and wipes out Assyria and the first exile into Babylon. So here's what Assyria did when they conquered a nation. Destroy everything. Just ruin everything and take everything from you that's yours. Invade the land, live in the land, just take it over. When Babylon conquered, what they did was they took people out of their homeland and took them back to Babylon. The first uh, exile into Babylon includes Daniel and his, uh, his compatriots. And that's where you read about them in the book of Daniel, which isn't written till some years later. But they are part of the first uh, exile. Jeremiah and Lamentations. If you ever wake up one morning and you figure, I feel good about today. I just, I'm feeling too good. I need to be brought down a couple pegs. Flip your Bible open to Lamentations. Read through that and within 20 minutes you will be down, laying on the ground thinking, I don't want to do anything today. It's just one of those books, man. What is up with Jeremiah and Lamentations? Well, somebody turn around and tell me, Jeremiah and Lamentations is written at what time? What happened? Right about the time that Jeremiah is writing. No, turn around, look at the poster, and say it out loud. What, what, Jeremiah is written in the shadow of what? The kingdom is over. It's done. We watched the northern kingdom fall apart, but we held on to hope for many generations that God would rescue, God would protect us, God would do something, and Jeremiah finally writes his letters at the time when we realize God is not going to show up. At least that's their perspective, right? The kingdom is done. Whatever we thought at the time, whatever we thought we were going to be, you know this, right? This happens to churches in the modern day. You've seen stories of churches, the church plant, and it grows, and it thrives, and then for some reason, 20 years later, it's just gone, right? That's, that's the shadow in which Jeremiah writes his letters. We have been so unfaithful that even a forgiving God looks to have abandoned us. That's what the mindset of the people was. And so he writes in that, in that context. But even in the midst of that, look at some of the language we find in Jeremiah uh, chapter 51. Go ahead and put that up on screen for us. Talks about promise and talks about hope. And he says, even though now, taking you out of the land of promise and, and Babylon has conquered, look, I'm going to stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Honey, he says to the people, don't worry about Assyria because I'm going to raise up Babylon. And then when they're captured to Babylon, he says, don't worry about Babylon. I'm going to raise up another. And decades later, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, says, what does this mean, this writing on the wall? Daniel says, what that means is the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. He raises them up and takes them down as he sees fit to accomplish his own purposes. And until you get your head around that, Nebuchadnezzar, you're never going to have sanity again. That's exactly what's happening. Jeremiah says this, I'm going to stir up one against Babylon. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God. 
Despite what you people are feeling, because Jerusalem is now crushed, and everything that we thought we were is gone, and we're slaves in Babylon, and I don't know about this. And There was a whole generation of people that were actually grown up Babylonian. Babylonian Jews. And why aren't we in our own land? Why I heard of these things, these promise, these fulfillment. Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord Almighty, through, though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Even though, Jeremiah says, that we keep proving ourselves unfaithful to God, he has not forgotten his promises that were rooted when he called Abraham. Fascinating to me, I mentioned this to the worship team earlier this morning, the book of Ezekiel that we read from this morning, I always had it in my mind that Ezekiel was one of those old, old prophets way back when. But the book of Ezekiel was written after the conquest, or sorry, after the, the exile. And here's what's interesting about that. You have a people uh, who are in captivity in Babylon, and they have this question. Why are we here? Why are things like they are? How did we get here? Why aren't we living in our promised land? I've heard the same questions of the church today. Why is the church not what it used to be, right? Why don't we have these things? So you have the book of Ezekiel and First and Second Kings written at a time when people are asking that question. Why are we here and why is the state of the union the way that it is? Now, First and Second Kings is just a history book. That just goes back and tells the story from the time of the kingdom to the time of captivity. Here's how this went. But Ezekiel is a much different book. Ezekiel is full of visions and prophetic language and it's very different. And so they talk about condemnation and consequence for being unfaithfulness. And then he tells this story in chapter 37, this valley of the dry bones. And the vision of it is just amazing. He says to Ezekiel, come and see this vision I'm going to give you. It's a valley of nothing but bones, which represents what? Death, destruction, been overrun. And he said, this, this is like the nation of Israel. And that's one of the places where Israel refers to the whole. And it's, if you were there at that time and place, you'd say, well, yeah, we're all in captivity. The nation is gone. And God says through that prophet, now, I want you to speak life into these bones. And, and just by the power of the word of God, you will see life come back into this. The picture that he gives in this powerful imagery is, I will bring new life out of something that there is no reason for life to come out of it. And I will rebuild my kingdom because I have determined it's what's going to happen. And so shortly after Ezekiel writes his letter, we have the first return of the exiles. Again, Babylon, whom no one could imagine being overthrown. When Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the most highest sovereign over all the kingdoms of man, and he gives them to whoever he wishes, Nebuchadnezzar laughs it off and says, well, that's interesting for you, but nobody can take from me what we've accomplished. And the Bible tells us that very night. That same night, the Persian Empire started their conquest and overthrew Babylon. So in 539, Babylon is overthrown. And in 538, the king of Persia says, I think the Jews ought to be allowed to go back to their land and start rebuilding their temple and start rebuilding their communities and start rebuilding their faith. And so suddenly there's hope where there had not have been hope. Not surprising, only a few years after Ezekiel says in his vision, God will bring something new. Haggai and Zechariah uh, are a time when, now this, here's the cycle of God's people, right? You're, you're, being, you're being redeemed. You are in the process of being rescued and recovered and brought back to a place of promise. And they get back into the land and they start rebuilding the temple and the nations around them threaten them. And so they stop building the temple. They get threatened and they get concerned and they get sidetracked and they stop. And so 
Haggai writes his letter to the, to the governor and he says, you, you do recall what unfaithfulness has cost us in the past, right? Dig in, get your feet underneath you, and get it done. About that same time as the people are starting to return into the promised land, Esther is queen in the land of Persia. So Persia is now the nation that's ruling the world, and Esther is queen, about 479. First and Second Chronicles, written very late, basically tells the story. There's two reasons why you do that. If you're starting now to return to a place of promise, the tendency would be, well, don't we feel good about ourselves? Well, look at what we've done. You can imagine as simple as building a building. Look what we did together. And First and Second Chronicles is to remind them, no, 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 this is what God has been doing all along. So even though First and Second Chronicles is early in your Bible and tells the old story, it's not written till very late to help people's heads get in the right place. The final return of the exiles into the promised land happens in 445. Ezra and Nehemiah write their letters. If you turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, you will find Nehemiah telling the story of him getting so frustrated that he's pulling people's beards out. You think, holy cow, that's not very godly, Nehemiah. I don't know why you should be that way. You take a look at the story and see that every place the people of God have suffered, they've suffered because they're not faithful. They've suffered because they've not been true to God. They've suffered because they got their own ideas. And Nehemiah looks at them and says, you're doing it again. Uh, you have to read the whole book to understand that they were just foregoing some of the things that were important. This is during the time that God is restoring them. He's in the process of rebuilding them, and they're failing to be faithful. So does Nehemiah have a right to be frustrated? Yes, they all said to the pastor, he has a right to do that. When the pastor preaches something over and over again, and you don't remember it, does he ever? Never mind, that's different altogether. Malachi, the book of Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, written about 15 years after the last remnant has come back. 445, the last of the people returned to the land. Uh, Malachi writes his letter. Again, if you read Malachi, it's not necessarily all that encouraging because Malachi looks and says, look at how complacent we're becoming. Look at that God is building and blessing and restoring us, and we're becoming so used to it that we're just becoming complacent and we're not being faithful. I wish I knew where that came from. Oh, wait, way back in Judges, we saw that cycle. That God's been so good that I just get complacent with it. And eventually I get lazy about it. Malachi saw the same thing. He said, look, we are in the middle of God's blessing. Let's not forget how important it is to be faithful to God. Let me ask you something. Today, here, North America, southwestern Ontario, Canada, Wyoming, Wyoming, Ontario, are we a blessed people? Do you feel as though we're a blessed people at all? A couple, I could be convinced if I really pushed, okay, there's a few more heads nodding. We are richly, richly blessed. The only reason that question is hard to answer, that we don't jump up and say, amen, we are blessed, is because we have no other perspective. We don't know what it's like to have anything but blessing. We've always been rich. We've always been provided. We've always had it easy compared to what some of the other people in the world are suffering. So yes, we are a richly blessed people. Now look at this story. Look at the cycle. And tell me, what ought we to be conscious of in the middle of God's blessing? Our faithfulness to Him. We as a people ought to be hyper-conscious of our faithfulness to God. And you as an individual ought to go home and look around you and be hyper-conscious of your faithfulness to God. I had somebody say to me again uh, just later, earlier this week, 
you know, this might be interesting. I don't really see the point. I don't understand. I don't know why. I'm hard to connect. And I get it. History is not for everybody. I understand that. I preach this on the assumption that your Bible is relevant to you. I preach this on the assumption that your Bible means something to you. And it breaks my heart when I hear people say, I don't really read my Bible. Like, I, I, I don't disagree with it. I don't, you know, but I don't really, meh. I hear it on Sunday, and I, I agree, so I don't really get into my Bible. Listen, we are a richly blessed people. We, we will never know, we will more than likely never know the kind of suffering that has happened in the story of this. So if we are richly blessed people, we need to be hyper-conscious of the goodness of God faithful to us. The book of Esther is probably the last book written. Uh, again, it's hard to nail down the dates. But it's probably one of the last written, and it's very uh, interesting as to why that is. What is it that's unique about the book of Esther? If you're a Bible study person at all, you know this. What's unique about the book of Esther compared to all the other books? Who do you not hear named? You don't hear God named at all. You read the book of Esther, and it's a fascinating story, but nowhere in it does it even mention God, and yet you see it, right? If you're careful to read it, you see the hand of God. You see the protection of God. And after we have this story of someone who is given a place of protection and God lifting her up and God accomplishing her purses, uh, pur- his purposes, by the way, in a land that was godless. Esther was not queen in her homeland. Esther was not queen in the, in the land of the promised land. She was in Persia. We see this picture that kingdom might mean something completely different. Kingdom at one time for us meant We're going to rule the way we want to rule, regardless of what the Scripture says. I don't really care what the Word says. We have our own idea of kingdom. Within 120 years, that falls apart. And then the kingdom suffers and rises and falls and rises and falls. And by the time they are brought back together into their land of promise, God says, kingdom might not mean anything like you thought it meant. Not at all surprising, and I'm going to jump ahead to next week just for a second to say this, that when Jesus says to them, Repent for the kingdom is actually here now. If there were anybody around him who had any sense of history, they would go, what? We're in a place of persecution again. By that time, Rome has conquered the world. And we're, now we're again people who don't have a place and we, we're under persecution. And Jesus says, now the real kingdom starts. It's a bit of a, headline, a headlight for us to get a sense of that. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on back up and help us finish out this morning. The word of the day is kingdom. And let's be clear about this. For the most part of the history of our New Testament, mankind got it wrong. But what a great story that's in your Bible. Take a look before you leave today and see what was happening in the world. Why is Jeremiah and Lamentations such a dark book? What was Isaiah speaking into when that happened? And you realize we are part of this story. And God is still building his kingdom right here today. If we are paying attention, we're going to be hyper-conscious of the fact that we are a richly blessed people. So do me a favor. Let me hear that in your voice as we finish out this morning. Let's stand and sing, inviting God to continue building his kingdom. Would you stand with us and sing this morning, please?